having a, a big conversation on the heels of one that we were just chatting about. I think the two are related. We were just talking about using psychedelic mushrooms for better mental health. And I know you have a lot of thoughts on this one, Ched Nation. Some of your texts, uh, a lot of them in favor, um, but I think a little curiosity and maybe some healthy skepticism when it comes to how this is all going to work. Um, This person on the text line saying, I have a few friends who microdose mushrooms and they both commented they have better focus and alertness. So I'm interested for sure. Lauren says yes to mushrooms. It will be a recognized therapy soon. And it certainly looks like it's headed that way. Someone else, try anything natural over psychiatric meds any day. And then another texter says, I can't help but think that this has the potential to turn into a similar situation as the opioid epidemic. And I think it's that sort of skepticism that we're we're, we're kind of all conscious of maybe as we dip our toe into our different understanding of what different drugs could mean for our life and how we approach them. And that's sort of what our next conversation is about. A committee meeting on Monday saw Edmonton City Councilors vote in favor of asking administration to explore this issue of decriminalizing simple possession of illegal drugs and provide some recommendations by early 2023. So they've got some time to work on the details of this. But what does this mean? And is this a good thing? I think there's a lot of skepticism around this conversation as well. So we're going to get into it right now with my next guest, who's an Edmonton physician who specializes in addiction. Dr. Janetta Salvalagio is joining me. Doctor, good morning. Thanks so much for making the time to be on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. So we're talking about council making a move to ask administration to do some further research in, in this area. I think immediately when people hear decriminalizing drugs, they think that we're going to have an issue that's going to be running rampant. How I'm curious, before we get into the details here, what's your perspective on what this could mean? Are you in favor of this idea? Uh, I certainly am because, if anything, criminalization has a lot of health and social harms as well. And I would, um, I'm, I'm just taking a health lens. I'm a family physician. I certainly see people with um, addiction in my practice. I'm part of a committee that, um, uh, you know, we all we work in all places in, in healthcare emergency ICU. We're seeing the impact on 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 people who use drugs, whether or not they actually meet the criteria for an opioid use disorder. Um, so people are dying, um, you know, from all walks of life, and um, and also uh, having a lot of other uh, consequences from a criminalized supply. Um, if if criminalization worked, um, which has been in place for um, a few decades now, um, we we should have seen some um, benefits and some results, and we're certainly not seeing those right now. So, in in your opinion, from your perspective as a physician who's dealing with addiction, how how would this work best for someone who is addicted to a substance? H- how would this actually be applied as a model that could help? Right. So it's not a model that you can apply on its own. It's got to be part of a whole continuum of support and care for people. And and and. Uh, but what we do know is that when you create criminalized spaces, uh, you limit the availability of evidence based. 
um, interventions in the community and also in, in, in policing and jail settings. So mm-hmm. people are afraid to have a conversation. Um, the the use is, in, is, is, is hidden. Um, it's in unsafe spaces. Um, the whole notion of incarceration and criminal records leads to social stigma and ex- exclusion, which certainly doesn't help anyone who's trying to get well um, and also leads to limits in their ability to be employed, housing, so on. So it's just it, it just perpetuates um, inequitable access to health and social support because of that worry about um, being criminalized. How much do you see that existing stigma play into your practice when you're speaking to a patient and and they're maybe keeping from you, keeping something from you? Do you find that people are even afraid to tell their doctor? Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, when you have criminalization on the books, um, it certainly kind of has um, uh, implications in all sorts of spaces, educational spaces and healthcare spaces and so on. So certainly my office is no exception. And we try to um, have an, uh, you know, um, a, a safe space in which people can just share anything that's impacting their health. But that definitely gets in the way because of stigma. Are you surprised that here in Edmonton, this is something that we're talking about? Um, you know, I'm not surprised because we know that, you know, you know, hundreds of people died from the opioid poisoning crisis this year. And year over year, we're seeing increases every year. Um, so the status quo um, is ineffective. We also know it, it costs a lot of money to, to continue to criminalize. So something has to change. And so do you think this is just something that would be a benefit when we're talking about opioids or do you see this expanding to other substances as well being something that could be a, a move in the right direction? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, a lot of people are talking about um, stimulants, and I know you were just talking about um, psychedelics and so on, but just, I mean, we know that, that people um, who use stimulants are, are um, faced with a very toxic supply right now, too. And, you know, as is often said by uh, many people um, engaged in this conversation right now, is you can't you can't recover. You can't have conversations about that if you're dead. And, and so it's going to impact people who don't primarily use opioids as well. Hmm. So, you know, obviously there's going to be the other side of this conversation. There's going to be the argument that's based, I think, in a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty about Mm -hmm. this becoming a problem that's going to then just run rampant. If you make drugs legal, more people are going to use, more people are going to have access. Why do you argue that that's not the case? Yeah, so when we talk about decriminalization, we're not talking about a completely unregulated Wild West environment, right? So it's like, so, you know, just like we have a lot of rules and regulations around, um, for example, alcohol. Right, um, we're not. It's not unfettered use. You're not selling to thirteen-year-olds. Um, you know, that, I, I, you know, as, as an example. Now, that's a little different because it's more than decriminalized in the case of alcohol. But, but the bottom line is, we're talking about a very strictly regula- regulated space. So you can't just all of a sudden do whatever you want. Um, it's got to be very, very strictly um, managed and monitored. And so, within those regulated spaces, the experience of other places that have looked at decriminalization has been overall positive and hasn't been associated with massive escalations in drug use or drug-related problems. It's, but it's a big ask, I think, to sort of reframe our idea of how we approach something that seems to be obviously detrimental and create havoc and chaos and, and oftentimes 
death for users. I mean, someone on our text line right now says, why does our government keep making drugs easily available, safe injection sites, et cetera? People need to have a recovery plan to get off drugs. What do you say to that? So we certainly, those of us who've been examining this issue from a health lens, no one's going to argue that having access, easy public investment um, to uh, make sure that anyone who 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 wants those supports can get them. So we will be the first in line to say it's important to have access to evidence-based addiction treatment. However, um, we can't just have that. So this is a very complex situation, and we need to look at a bunch of things. And it, you know, if somebody is um, hiding their use, then there's just you're never going to get to that point where you're having those conversations either. So we have to we have to just be able to have open and transparent and honest conversations. Yeah, I think you know, p- putting someone away, so to speak, that's struggling and needs that access to recovery by making it criminal, it just perpetuates a, a problem and just continues it going on for longer and longer and longer. So, mm-hmm. Doctor, thank you so much for making the time this morning and for sharing your perspective. Really appreciate your thoughts. Thank you for having me. Of course. Take care. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.